This is the Rotoscopers Podcast, Episode 3, Rockadoodle. Animation, it's music to my ears. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with over 100,000 downloadable titles. Choose from all types of literature that feature audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For the listeners of the Rotoscopers podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free trial to give you the opportunity to try out their service. One audiobook to consider is Mary Norton's The Borrowers. This is the book that The Secret World of Arietti was based on. Personally, I love the movie and I love reading books that the movies are based on. So this is a chance for you to get to see the big picture of the little people in a big world. So for a free audiobook, such as this book, The Borrowers, go to audibletrial.com backslash the rotoscopers. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash the rotoscopers for your free audiobook. Welcome to the Rotoscopers Podcast, an animation podcast for animation addicts, Disney, DreamWorks, Pixar, Don Bluth, and everything in between. I'm your host, Mason Smith, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Cool Trainer, Morgan Burt. <laughs> Hello. And Yodeling Champion, Chelsea Robson. Howdy. <laughs> hey, how's everybody doing, guys? I had a good weekend. Oh, you did? What did you do? Oh, I saw Wicked. Uh, so, it was lucky. good. Mm. Yeah, thanks. It's kind of, it's one I would like to see made an animated film, but it's probably not going to happen anytime in the near probably decade. Not. <laughs> so I'm doing great. This is another great week for animation. So yeah, I'm doing just fine. This was an incredible week for animation. We have a lot of news stories and a lot of things to catch everybody up on. And we're really excited to be able to share so much great, fantastic stuff. Yeah. All right, welcome to the news. So this week there was a lot of news in the animated world. One of the first things that we're going to talk about is The Simpsons celebrated its 500th episode. Yay, Simpsons! Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> you know, we cover animation news, mostly film news, but this is pretty a substantial achievement for Simpsons. Chelsea and I are huge Simpsons fans and grew up and can quote Simpsons nearly as good as we can quote Disney. So... I watched this episode. It aired Sunday, February 19th. And What'd you it, think? It was good. It was just kind of a normal episode for me. It wasn't an epic episode. The Simpsons, they got kicked out of Springfield, so they go to this like alternative lifestyle hobo city. and It was, it was okay. There was like one funny moment or a few. So it was, it was actually really funny because I was watching it with my nephew, who's six, and he's never seen The Simpsons before. And there were certain lines that I wasn't even like cracking a smile at, like been there done that seen it a million times and he thought it was the funniest thing in his life he was laughing at like all the maggie jokes where maggie like hits someone or like bart moon somebody or like you know all the things you're like oh yeah yeah cool he thought it was the funniest show 22 seasons ago yeah Yeah, eat my shorts bit like done but yeah i thought it was good so. Yeah, seriously. And th- The Simpsons are significant as an animated show. It's also significant that they are the longest-running scripted television show in history, and that's 23 seasons total. That's even more than just the longest-running animation mm-hmm. cartoon of any kind. It is scripted show, period. Yeah, animated only, or not. Yeah, the only thing that comes right behind it is Law & Order, which has 22 seasons, and that means they are right on each other's tail. Hey, there you go. <laughs> 
Actually, there are two other Simpsons news stories this week that are notable. One, Matt Groening donated a $500,000 endowment to the UCLA's animation program. Oh, yeah. So that was actually really cool. This endowment is for animation professionals to come to UCLA and so they can work with their students. And then also, I think this kind of coincided with the 500th episode. Well, there's a lot of 500s here. 500th episode, 500,000. But, hmm, um, I wonder if there's a connection. Pro- hmm. Probably. I mean, I wish I had that much money where I could just donate $500,000 just because it matched. But He's been saving up. <laughs> he has had 23 seasons to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I probably got 500 pennies lying around somewhere. You should donate them. Go for it. Seriously. Done. To me. <laughs> <laughs> and he's also he also got his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Uh, you know, just today I saw the Academy Award-nominated short films in the animation category in Salt Lake. Nice. Awesome. How did that go? Yeah. They showed five short films. They were all really interesting, and they were all really good. A lot of them were from Canada. A couple of them were from the U.K., and a couple mm-hmm. of them were U.S. films. Uh, the one of, of most uh, that was most notable to me was called La Luna. It's by Pixar. This is the new short film that will air in theaters before Brave this year. And I saw it today at the Tower Theater in Salt Lake. That one was the most noteworthy to me because, well, of course, it was Pixar, so the animation quality was really, really good. The texturing, the lighting, uh, it tells a really magical story. It's about a young boy who is with his father and his grandfather in a boat. He finds out that they have a very interesting business that they run in the family. I don't know if I should give it away because I think she, people should just be surprised when they don't see it. Don't give it away. Yeah, okay. that's good. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> but it's but it, out it was, there, and it's cool. <laughs> it's out there, and it's cool. If you're lucky to see it uh, at these Oscar-nominated showings, um, it's really good. I like Pixar because not only do they look good, but the story reads well. Some of these other short films, they were really abstract, and while they had really interesting animation techniques, the story didn't read very well. And all my experience in my you know my short, short-lived animated career so far tells me that you have to have a story and a message that's readable, that the audience can read that they can, you know, see and, and figure out. And so that's my, that's my take on the, on the shorts this week. If you have the chance to see the Oscar-nominated short films uh, in the animated category, go see them. It's well worth it, and uh, they're really interesting. Personally, I think La Luna is going to take the awards for the animated short films. Yeah, I was supposed to see that last week, but I didn't end up seeing it, and you beat me to it. it had to one-up me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. Maybe I'm, I'm, I might get to see it this week. If you want to see the Oscar-nominated shorts for an animated picture, we're going to put a link on the website in the show notes so you can find maybe if they're showing it at a theater near you. Because really, you're not going to be able to see La Luna until Brave comes out. So that's, what, June? So if you want to see it now and get the chance, and then you'll actually be well-versed before the Oscars, go see it. Yeah, and it's also worth seeing these showings because there's also a film that was done in Louisiana in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And there was another one that was from Australia that was in the honorable mentions that they showed afterwards. I think it was called Knoll Arbor. I think it's a 96-mile stretch of highway that has, like, nothing on it in Australia. And they do this really funny story about two guys riding in cars trying to one-up each other. And <laughs> So they were all really good. If you can see all of them in one, one showing like I did today, it's well worth it. Well, this week we've been getting a bunch of movie posters in. A lot of movie posters. And so we're going to have a little bit of a dialogue to find out what we think about these first glances at these new films that are coming out. The first one that we have is called The Rise of the Guardians. Now, we've talked about this one in a few of the last episodes. So the new poster that came out, I was looking at it, and for me, I'm not really liking the design on these. What do you guys think? To me, they're not memorable in a way. They don't even look like they're kind of from the same universe. 
And I guess maybe it's supposed to be. I mean, Santa's his own world. Jock Frost is his own world. The Easter Bunny's his own world. But I, I don't know. It just doesn't grab my attention. I don't really want to see this movie based on just the poster. Yeah, like I was saying, I don't think it's very relatable either. You know, they they look too rigid, and if they were creating characters, that would be one thing. But these are very well-known characters, obviously, in our childhood, in our lives. They're not very... They're not very soft and warming. Tender. Tender, yeah. These are definitely not... They, they have a little too many lines. A little, it's too rigid, I, I believe. I always look back at, like, Coca-Cola. You know, Coca-Cola always did Santa best, I believe, in oh, the yeah. animated uh, cartoons and everything. Yeah, Santa's soft. He's lovable. He's cuddly. You know, you want to sit on his lap. And this this Santa's scary. Yeah. <laughs> I just look at him, like, his eyes just look, like, oh, like piercing. His, yeah. Big old eyebrows, so... Uh, with the Guardians, I, I too, I, I'm not liking the, the character design. It looks really cutting edge and stylized, and I don't think that kind of personifies these kind of iconic fairy tale characters. I don't know about holiday characters, because the Sandman doesn't have a holiday. That'd be cool, though. It'd be like sleeping day, you know? <laughs> the Sandman's coming. Everyone take a 12-hour nap. <laughs> that's That's part of Thanksgiving. The latter <laughs> half of Thanksgiving. Wow. That could open up an entire entire new mythos that <laughs> comes after the Thanksgiving feast. Sandman enters. <laughs> well, he was probably sleeping. That's why he was late. And, you know, but he gets there and he does all his work. <laughs> He's like, that's your turn. Yeah, totally. I agree with Chelsea. This is probably isn't a kid's show. I noticed on the IMDb page that all the main character voice actors are grown-ups, and there's no kids, you know? There doesn't seem to be any youth in the voice talent, so I'm guessing this isn't a kid's show. Next, we got The Croods coming out in March 2013. It's a DreamWorks show. The poster shows a family of Neanderthalic, prehistoric cave people, and I don't know, I guess they got a couple of exotic pets looking there, and they're all kind of like, huh, huh, huh? (laughs) Kind of looks to me like, do you remember that dinosaur? It was by, who was it by? It was just a dinosaur. Like, they were, like, Muppet dinosaurs. Oh, but you mean, like, dinosaurs? The live-action kind of, like, Puppet live movie? Yeah. yeah. I love that show. It kind of reminds me I'm that. I'm a baby. Gotta love me. There yeah. you go. They've got a baby. They've got a big, they got a big hulking dad, you know? And they got a, a cool-looking son. I, I don't know. I mean, I look at this poster, and I'm just like, kind of, hmm, man, I don't know if I'm really interested in this. What do y'all think? This is the first look we've had of this. I didn't even know this movie was in development until just now. And the characters, actually, they just look pretty generic. Mm -hmm. They don't really look DreamWorks. They don't look Disney. I mean, it's just any studio could have done this. I mean, it's another factor what the animation looks like. But design, not too pleased so far. All right, the next movie is Disney's Frankenweenie, directed by Tim Burton. This comes out October 5th, 2012. Mm -hmm. So it's actually, this is, we actually missed this one in our roundup on our first episode of the upcoming, but... The movie poster was released today, and so the synopsis for Frankenweenie essentially is Frankenstein. So there's this little boy, his name's Victor, his dog dies, and so he tries to recreate the dog. It's a stop-motion feature. A lot of the animators who worked on Corpse Bride are working on this, and I hadn't seen anything up until this point. So this actually, out of all three, looks the most intriguing and exciting. It has very much a Burton-esque feel to them. I mean, I think we've seen Burton's characters. They're kind of otherworldly, decrepit. And we've seen them over the past 15, 20 years. And so it's not new, but still, this movie looks pretty exciting. I think it's interesting how Tim Burton really just has his time of year. And 
Halloween is when he shines. <laughs> I think every one of his movies that has ever come out, it's been around Halloween. Okay, our last bit of news is DreamWorks revealed that they're doing a joint venture in China to build a new studio. So one of the main reasons they are planning on building this studio in China is because the Chinese government is very strict on how many foreign films can be shown in China. And for example, last year, only around 20 films were shown in China. And the main reason behind it is I think the Chinese government thinks that if they allowed, let's say, 30, the Chinese film industry would completely collapse. Um, I mean, big whoop, they're good at everything else, but it's fine. So anyways, this is actually a big opportunity for DreamWorks because it's going to allow them to get their foot in the door and then be able to more easily show their films to a hugely untapped audience. Okay, so our last bit of news is the box office performance of The Secret World of Arietti. It raked in around $8 million. Overall, it was eighth, so I guess most studios would say that's a failure, but considering it only opened in 1,500 theaters, it wasn't too bad. Chelsea and I, we actually saw it yesterday, which was the Monday President's Day holiday, and we saw it at 12.50 in the afternoon, and every single seat was full. So I thought that, with kids. <laughs> yeah, all kids, no seats, and it wow, was you, really good. Are you serious? Yeah. It was really that full? So I don't, I don't understand wh- quite why it didn't do so well in the box office, considering it was completely full, but maybe it will have more of a long-running history. Yeah, I don't understand either. I didn't go see it. I went and saw Star Wars Episode One in 3D on Monday instead. Oh. <laughs> Traitor. <laughs> no, Star Wars fan. <laughs> My allegiance is to the Republic, always. Well, alrighty. Okay, so that's our news. Well, I'm back. Every episode we try to talk about an element of film or an animation principle to apply to the film that we're focusing on for each episode. This week I thought we'd focus on one of the 12 principles of animation. It's a really important one. It's called timing. In acting, timing is how long the actor holds a pose or how quickly or slowly he or she goes through a motion. In animation, it's basically the same. To quote The Illusion of Life, the book on Disney animation, the number of drawings used in any move determines the amount of time that action will take on the screen. In the animation industry, you use in-betweens, which are drawings that you put between poses, and you insert them, you insert a certain number of these in-betweens between poses, and the more in-betweens you use, the longer an action will take to play out. The Illusion of Life has a really good example. If you take one simple motion, like turning your head from one side to the other side and raising your chin slightly, depending on how quickly or how slowly you do it, gives a different message. For example, if an animator puts just one in-between drawing between the two poses from jerking one side of your head to the other, it gives a message like, boom, this character just got hit in the face by like a brick. But if you add like 10 in-betweens, you know, he moves slowly from moving his head from one side to the other, raising his chin slightly, so he might be doing, gives off the message that he's doing something completely different. So how quickly or how slowly an animation plays out in the film gives a totally different message. Now, going back to the animation industry, timing, the principle of timing is so important. In the industry, animators use what's called an exposure sheet or an X sheet, which breaks down the layers of animation. And included in those layers are the sound and the music in a scene, which breaks down the layers of animation. Not just that, but also the sound and the music in a certain scene. It shows every frame during an animation, so you see exactly what's going on each second. Basically, it's a way to break down what your timing is going to be for a certain for a certain scene, which is important when you're doing animation with sound and with soundtrack, for example, like a, a song that the character is singing. 
I remember a story that my 2D animation professor told our class last fall. She said that while some BYU animation students were showing some pencil tests of what they wanted to do for the student short film, the animation was so rhythmic, and they didn't see it, but the, the timing of it was so rhythmic that the professor was literally, like clapping her hands in rhythm. <laughs> and it was a beat that the animation was going along with. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. That's hilarious. Yeah. She said that that is one of the more common uh, mistakes for animators who are just starting out and learning how to do timing right. Sometimes you want rhythm in your animation, like during songs. Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about Rock-A-Doodle by Don Bluth today. It has a lot of songs, and the characters, you know, they, they bounce and they move along to the beat of the song. So sometimes you want that. Going more into timing, typical animation is done on ones or on twos. So those two terms, what they mean is that each drawing in a typical animation occupies one or two frames of film. And so you get, there is a difference when it's at 24 frames per second. Most normal action in an animation is done on twos, which means that the same image in an animation occupies two consecutive frames in the film. On ones are used for more elaborate, delicate actions according to the illusion of life, and also for quick animations where shooting on twos wouldn't read well. For example, when a character is walking past the layout and the layout is moving with their feet. Um, going back to a previous episode, in The Iron Giant, the giant, though shot in 3D animation, it was a CGI character, it was still shot on twos to match the hand-drawn characters as they were moving. I remember working on my first 30-second animation in my 2D class last fall, and I remember timing was a big issue. When I showed my, key, my keyframe animations to my professor, she saw that there was a rhythm to it and that the motions that I was doing, they weren't, the timing wasn't right. Just to give you an idea of what we were doing, we were doing a, an animation of, of flower sacks. It's kind of like the standby, like, first animation that, that, an, that student animators do. And so they're sacks of flower. They don't have faces. You know, they don't have ex facial expressions. But we have to animate them and make them, you know, come alive and show off emotion and expression, which is a challenge when you're just dealing with a sack of flower. Kind of oh. reminds me of the, the singing trees thing that Disney did in the very beginning. Oh, or it reminds me of the carpet from Aladdin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the carpet is a really good example of that, an inanimate object that becomes animated and it takes on a life of its own. That was the challenge that we had during the fall. It was actually my final project. I shot it all on twos. I think I did about 200 individual drawings for a 30-second animation. There was one girl who did it on ones. That means that she drew a separate drawing for every single frame. She used an entire ream of multi-purpose <laughs> paper. Oh, jeez. Definitely not animation. green. Yeah. Definitely, Definitely not Lorax approved. <laughs> oh, Lorax does not approve. <laughs> but I remember the timing was a real challenge because I had to deal with walk cycles. We had to have a jump in our animation, so I had to animate that and have it time right. You know, gravity is, you know, nine point, the pull of gravity is 9.8 meters per second, and we had to show that. Um, and also, I had kind of these comedic these little beats that, that showed off the comedy of the, of the animation. So I had to really take my time with that and be really careful about it. I literally had to calculate how many seconds I wanted an action to last. So I would kind of snap my fingers or look at a stopwatch and be like, okay, that jump needs to last that long. Okay, that's 1.3 seconds times 24. That's how many frames this needs to work. This needs to last. Lots of trial and error, and it's definitely not how the animators do it in the real industry. But I learned so much about timing and the importance of it. It's a real challenge. For one, avoiding that unwanted rhythm, and also having things go quick enough or having things go the right speed to get the message across. By the way, the girl that turned in her animation, she did not even see how it looked on the computer until 
probably about six hours before we had to go back in class and turn in the project. She had an entire ream of paper to scan in. She did it all in ones. It turned out perfectly the first time. Dang. Yeah, she was. <laughs> she was one of two students that got A's in that class. Everyone else made B's and C's. And who was the other one? <laughs> well, I didn't want to say it, but I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we have the best with us. Today. Only the best. No, I saw Mason's Sackflower animation, and it was very, very impressive. You know, I, I don't know necessarily all the technical terms and things to look for, but it caught my eye. It had a cool story. The way people were moving were moving the right way. People meaning Sackflower. <laughs> I, I mean, they became personalities in themselves, and I think definitely your attention to timing contributed to that. Well, I appreciate that. And I'll be talking about that particular 30-second animation a lot because I learned all of these principles while I was doing it. Maybe we can find some way to link it to the website so our listeners can see it. Yeah, we can put that on. Be cool. And so that's, to kind of wrap it up, timing is how quickly or how slowly an animated character goes through a motion. And so when you see an animated film, look for that. Um, look for the timing and the pacing of all their movements and expressions as you would like a comedy routine or someone who's acting. And we're going to see, we're going to talk about that for this film Rockadoodle. Okay, now on to our main discussion. This week we picked Rockadoodle, which was a film by Don Bluth. Chelsea picked this one out for us. Yay! <laughs> Personal favorite of hers, so we'll talk about that. So first and foremost, I do want all of our listeners to know, I mean, I, this is kind of a duh statement, but this discussion does contain spoilers. So if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want to find out what happens, don't listen because we're talking about things that happen at the beginning, at the end, we're giving away big plot points. But seriously, if you don't want to find out what happens in Rockadoodle, pause it, go watch it, and then come back. I am so excited to be able to talk about this movie. I know that you guys don't share the same affinity that I have. No, I do. Okay, Morgan okay. does. Mason, you never saw this movie before this time. And so it, m- it probably has a different... You, you, you saw this one before? I think I saw it when I was like four years old, but then I saw it this week. I don't think you probably have the same affinity if you didn't watch this every sixth day of your elementary career like I did. And this week I ended up catching the little bug that has been going around. So that's one of the cool things that I've got to do is to be able to relive my childhood of watching Rockadoodle <laughs> on all sick days. Okay, so general info for this. This was released April 3rd, 1992. That wasn't its original date. It was supposed to come out November 1990. But studio issues caused Don Bluth to push it back, and then the date they pushed back happened to be the same day that Beauty and the Beast was coming out, so Uh-oh. they pushed it back <laughs> <Don't>. again. <laughs> Don't do that one. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, and the funny thing is they, they rushed and rushed and rushed to get it done by November 1990, and then it just kept getting pushed back yeah. and back, and so... Which is really too bad, because had this come out in 1990, it, I'm sure it would have been received completely differently. Oh, Yeah. Because also, I mean, this, we're going to talk about it a little later, it kind of flopped in the box office, kind of meaning a lot. Um, <laughs> I mean, they pushed it back, and still it went head-to-head against Ferngully. So, I mean, if you're going to push it back, give yourself a chance. Yeah. Like, I, Don't I go head-to-head against anybody. <laughs> I mean, a lot of work was put into this. I would have liked to have seen it done better, but mm-hmm. past is past. 
This was directed by Don Bluth, who happens to be an Arizona native. So we are fans. Chelsea Yay. and I, being from Arizona, find that rather exciting. We're actually going to go meet him in a few weeks. Well, hopefully, right? Hey, sweet. Really? Yeah. Or he's putting on this play. He It's called Front Row Theater. And it's this production company that he does in his house in Scottsdale. And Scottsdale is like Beverly Hills of Arizona. And so it's just this little every seat's a front row seat type of thing. And we're going to go see it on opening night. So we're really excited. We're hoping to be able to meet him. We don't know if that'll actually happen. But considering it is opening night, there's a pretty good chance that he'll be there. And it's at his house. It's his house. (laughs) You know, so let's go. Um, Okay. Can't miss up on a can't miss on an opportunity like that. No, not at all. If you ever come down, we can take you too. He has a whole lineup of things. Oh, I wish. Now, if this is the first time our listeners have heard of Don Bluth, I hope not. But if this is the first time, here's a little taste of of what you need to know about him. Uh, he designs all the characters in his films. I read on his IMDb bio. He serves as the key storyboard artist in his films, and when the mood strikes him, he also is known to write some songs for his films. And he also writes uh, or collaborates on most of the scripts for his projects. Control freak. (laughs) Or lack of help. (laughs) Either way. Help me. (laughs) But I love Don Bluth's films. All of his just have a great touch to them that I've always just... I've had this affinity for him, obviously. Yeah. All right, here's a little random trivia for Don Bluth's Rockadoodle. This was the only Don Bluth movie to contain live action, as we saw with the character Edmund in his terrifying transformation. And he was the only... Oh, never mind. He wasn't the only live action. No, he has, he has a family. He has a family, yeah. He has his family, yeah. Um, Glenn Campbell, he was chosen as the voice and the singing voice of Chanticleer after Don Bluth heard his yodeling in the I Remember You song. Not yeah, only does he sing, plays the guitar, but he also yodels. So, what, Chelsea, what is it about yodeling that, that makes, it so, makes him so appealing? You know, I'm not really sure why Americans and, you know, people from Switzerland like yodeling so much. <laughs> <laughs> it is something that people associate talent with, apparently. <laughs> when I was in junior high, I did a talent show in which I yodeled, and I ended up winning. And so that is one of the reasons why I call myself a, a yodeling champion. <laughs> and I think, not to say you're, not, you're a bad singer, but I think what really tipped you over the edge back then yeah. was because you yodeled and it people was. thought it was awesome. It was. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest, I hadn't had as much training as I have had now. And it was just that something that's different. That's something that, like, thinks, whoa, what is that? <laughs> yeah. People come up to Chelsea all the time. They're like, you're the yodeling girl. Can you yodel? <laughs> I know. I could... <laughs> You know, I did that in junior high, and people were still talking about that in, you know, senior year in high school. (laughs) Like, I remember you. (laughs) Well, good. Glad I was good for something. (laughs) I do have other stuff. (laughs) Okay, so here's the synopsis. There's a boy named Edmund. He's reading a storybook about Chanticleer. He's this rooster who sings, and he brings the sun up. One day, they figure out someone tricks him to thinking that he isn't the reason the sun goes up. So he goes away. He's exiled. And this little boy, Edmund, through a series of events, becomes an animated character and is on this search, along with all the other barnyard pals, to go find Chanticleer. The runtime is about 77 minutes, so it's really not a long... It's not a long film at all. But they go through a lot of different a lot of different scenes, a lot of different mu- music, and they have a lot of different themes as well. And the voice actors for this film are, are notable. This was the last film role for Phil Harris, and if... And I love him. If anyone remembers the name Phil Harris, he was 
Blue in the Jungle Book. He was Thomas O'Malley in the Aristocats. And he was Lil John in Robin Hood, my personal favorite. So I love all Phil Harris's Disney voice acting roles. There's just something about that voice. He's got this awesome voice. And when I heard him narrating the film, I was like, whoa, it's the, it's the, it's the guy from, from all the Disney movies that I love. And it was, a, it was a pleasant surprise. We also have Glenn Campbell, who plays the, the rooster Chanticleer. Oh, and here's a little side note for Glenn Campbell. When I was about nine or ten, I had no idea who he was. Most nine-year-olds wouldn't. Right, exactly. (laughs) Don't blame yourself. (laughs) It'll be okay. (laughs) We were performing at the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 30, in the pregame show. And we were waiting to go on, and there's the Jumbotron comes on, and it has this guy, and he starts talking. It's like, hey, welcome to Arizona, and just a whole bunch of stuff like that. And I look over to my brother, Randy, and I say, Randy... Who's he? He says, Glenn Campbell. That meant nothing to me, of course. <laughs> and he saw the confused look on my face, and he just takes a moment. He's like, he was on Rockadoodle. Oh! <laughs> the light bulb turns on. <laughs> like every kid, just relate it back to an animated movie. Exactly. That was my, that's my world. But Glenn Campbell, uh, he is known mostly for his guitar skills, his singing skills. He's an amazing performer. Really is an amazing performer. And he's actually been in the news this last week. He was able to receive the Lifetime Achievement Award for the Grammys. Nice. Which is huge. For Rockadoodle? I'm sure that was (laughs) high on the list of reasons. But he is just an amazing performer. He's a legend. He actually started out his career playing guitar for the Beach Boys. Oh, cool. He was a session recorder, which means that he wasn't... And a guy that went on tour or anything, but he was on all of the records. So every record that you ever heard, those are session players, basically. So Glenn Campbell really is a name to know. Okay, so let's talk about the development of this film really quick, because it's important to find out, like, how did Don Bluth become who he is? This wasn't the first movie he did, but... So Don Bluth, he was a Disney animator. He worked on Robin Hood. He worked on part of Fox and the Hound. And during Fox and the Hound, it wasn't working out, and so he left. And with him, he took 16 other Disney animators. Just during the middle of production, they all left, and he formed his own studio. That studio was able to create Land Before Time, American Tale, and and right before this, All Dogs Go to Heaven. He had a string of successes right before this and was really excited to, to do this movie. And unfortunately, even he himself said the film didn't live up to what he envisioned. So it's kind of a sad fact when the creator of the film says that about it, but there were different factors that played into that. The story of Chanticleer, the rooster, as early as the 30s, Disney had plans to make this movie. Mark Davis, one of the original Nine Old Men, he storyboarded a lot of the characters and did a lot of the storyboards and the character designs. And then it was originally supposed to be the movie right after 101 Dalmatians. But when they showed it to the financial executives, they completely like tore it down and threw it out because they said, you can't make a good character out of a chicken. Uh, and little did they know you could. Yeah, he definitely could. But, I mean, you see later in Robin Hood, actually some of these designs that were used were used in Robin Hood. The, that, the would-be Chanticleer Disney movie were actually kind of transported into what Robin Hood would be. It's loosely based on a French play from the early 1900s called Chanticleer. You know, like we said, this was supposed to be released in Thanksgiving of 1990, but because of studio problems, it had to be pushed back to 91. Lots of those problems were also things were cut or changed out of the film due to audience screenings. For example, Goldie's design, which we'll talk about a little bit later, and then 
The Grand Duke's breath was changed to be pink, so it would be less scary. Uh, you also had a bottle of wine that Goldie and Chanticleer were drinking was changed to be soda. And Something that I thought was really interesting was most of the original dialogue between Goldie and Chanticleer had to be removed because it was dubbed risque. Yeah, the dialogue supposedly had like double meaning. So, I mean, it would it would mean one thing, but then if you kind of got the other more risque version of it, uh, definitely meant something different. Interesting. I, I can only imagine. <laughs> so remember how Rockadoodle got pushed back um, quite a few months because it would be competing with, uh, you know, Disney giants like Beauty and the Beast? In the end, when it was released, it went head-to-head with none other than Fern Gully. <laughs> so all that work to get it pushed into the, you know, strategically placed at a good time, and it still went up against the power player Fern Gully. What I learned from this, here's the lesson. Here's the moral of the story. Don't put yourself against another animated film. Like, you don't want to have to make your audience choose between your film and their film. Because if your film isn't that good, they're going to choose the other guy every time. Good words yeah. to live by. So, unfortunately, that happened to Bluth. And a year and a half after the release of Rocket Doodle, he had to liquidate his studio completely get rid of it you know eventually he started from scratch again but that's not what you want here's the end of the story the budget for rockadoodle was an estimated 18 million dollars it grossed in the u.s less than 12 million we kind of mentioned about some of the voice actors but let's talk a little bit about the characters what we like about them what we don't first and foremost there are way too many of them here here i mean when you have to include every member of the barn you gotta cut back. And I know they did that at the beginning of the movie. They left half of the crew, like, hanging out to to ward off the owls. But still, there were, what, like, five that went on this journey, and I I didn't care about any of them, let alone Edmund. But let's talk about the lead character, Chanticleer, or Chanticleer. Yeah, is it Chanticleer or Chanticleer? Depends on what part of the country you're in. Yeah. Well, Duke calls him Chanticleer, and then you've got um, the dog who just says Chanticleer, you know? So who knows? Now, was Chanticleer supposed to be compared with Elvis Presley? Yes. Most definitely kind of a huge ripoff of The King. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Hey, so maybe compared was like an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, he even had the pink convertible. He wore the white jumpsuit in one scene. Or, like, he had Dyed a billboard. His black. Yeah, so pretty much he's meant to be Elvis Presley. Did Elvis Presley have, like, a huge, gigantic upper body, or was that just a Chanticleer thing? Because I was he always weirded out. Very, he did have a very large upper body. Oh, okay, good. I, I was always kind of, I don't know, I was always w- weirded out by how big his upper body was in the movie. <laughs> Jealous? Never. <laughs> I, got another big que- I got another question for y'all. So, we've got the Grand Duke, he's this owl, and he's the antagonist in the movie. I'm pretty sure the guy's a vampire. <laughs> You guys think so? Why do you say that? I, I maybe that maybe my listeners will maybe some of the listeners will agree who've seen this. Here's my points: the Grand Duke has a Dracula cape, black on the outside, red on the inside. Classic, <laughs> classic Dracula cape. The guy hates sunlight. He's got mad pipe organ skills, <laughs> which comes standard with all vampires. <laughs> comes standard. Well, it's part of their it's part of their Dracula training. Now he also has magic powers. He's got like those sparkly, dazzly powers that vampires have. Mm-hmm. Edward. Yes. Edward is too very sparkly. He doesn't sparkle. Yeah, he does. His breath sparkles? His breath sparkles. You know where I got the sparkle and the dazzle from? You play the first Final Fantasy game on the original Nintendo system. You fight a vampire, and he has a special attack called Dazzle. <laughs> I, have no, I have no idea what it does. 
from Vampires Have Dazzle Powers. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> we'll go with that. Uh, yeah, well, based Dazzle. on that description, he is a vampire. Okay. But, well, I, okay, to be honest about Duke, I think he's a really weak villain. Yeah. I mean, what, his, he wants to have perpetual darkness so he can, what, stay up 24 hours? I mean, <laughs> does, he, does he not sleep? <laughs> I mean, daytime's perfect chance to sleep. Or is it, is it more he needs perpetual darkness so he can, you know, scare everybody and, and rule? I think this guy, I think this guy has bowler hat guy syndrome. <laughs> I don't know how well thought out his plans are. Yeah. He, well, he seems to have be quite powerful. He has, you know, this this gang of toads that that does his bidding in town, and then his other owl friends, and of course his little nephew, which is pretty awesome. Punch. <laughs> He's more of a hoot than he was horrible, but he was a nuisance. <laughs> <laughs> the next character is Goldie, and Goldie's my, probably my favorite character in this. Uh, so, we should, if we're going to like do the comparisons here, we've got. Chanticleer with Elvis, and then the Duke with Dracula. Is Goldie supposed to be, like, what, Marilyn Monroe? Mm, yeah. I mean, she has that little, like, sweet Marilyn Monroe type of voice. She's a pinup, it seems. Uh-huh. Yeah, I could see that comparison. All right, we'll go with that one. Um, here's something interesting. Goldie is not a chicken. She's a pheasant. Uh, so, it's kind of, I don't know. That- I, just, I just kind of assumed she was a chicken, but guess not. She also is designed after Jessica Rabbit. She was actually supposed to be a lot sexier than she is in the current film. Test audiences thought that she was too sexual. So what they had to do is they had to paint feathers over her chest to cover her cleavage and, and you know, obviously take out some of her lines. I mean, she still has, essentially is wearing just a one-piece swimsuit the whole time. But yeah, that's okay. Long legs are not tantalizing, apparently. Uh, She's not who you ask. Yeah. And I really, I don't know. I said I liked her a lot. I love the way that... Don Bluth designs like sexy women characters. This actually reminds me of a lot of the main girl in Dragon's Lair, which was a, a laser disc video game. Her name was Daphne, and she also wore this like black one piece. It kind of had like slits and whatever. I don't know. I think there were lots of inspiration for her. I like her. She's very, you know, she's shallow, but she grows. She's cool. She's she's a lot smarter than you give her credit for. I think. And we also have like peepers. You know, she's just this little mouse that runs around with, like, the big giant glasses and, you know, of course, your typical nerd that you throw in there. Uh, if you're going to make a nerd, apparently they have to have glasses, they have to talk with a lisp, and then they have to have the line, according to my calculations. <laughs> like, how many movies do they say that? You know, there was one nerdy chick in a magic school bus that said that every episode. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Wasn't that, wait, who was that? That wasn't the one kid's cousin or sister, right? Uh, it was like a girl. She was, she, every Isn't episode she she'd be head? like, according to my research. <laughs> I'm I, telling you. For some reason, I remember her being redhead. It's like, we've, been, we, we've been trapped in this nerdy kid's body for the past 20 minutes. How, how much have you researched while we've been down here? <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> like, we've been out in the solar system for 20 minutes. How, how are you researching all that? Yeah, they definitely did not have internet back then. Yeah, so. definitely, definitely. Totally. All right, well, moving on. What are some key scenes we want to discuss? Well, this isn't really a key scene, but can I just say I knew this movie would be cheesy from the second I heard the line, Chanticleer loved horsing around. And as they say that, he's jumping around on a bunch of horses. Oh, boy. Oh, dear. <laughs> no, I like the scene where Edmund transforms into a cat. There's only a couple scenes that I like Edmund in because his voice is so high-pitched and so annoying. 
Edmund My- is a Edmund's a disposable character to me. Oh. I I think this story would be absolutely perfect. Or whoa 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 whoa, whoa. those are big words. <laughs> I think it would be fine if they cut the whole Edmund turning into a cat, and if they just had the barnyard animals go to retrieve Chanticleer. But that's just <laughs> yeah, me. I that's think they right. have to throw like another layer. Like, oh no, we don't know the way, but the six-year-old boy knows the way back to the city in the storm. Let's go get him. Yeah, or to or to put another element of like emotional connection with the audience, you know, instead of being like, okay, so we got farm animals, we're trying to save their farm, they're going to go out and get Chanticleer, it's like, oh crap, Edmund's been turned into a cat and his whole house is about to be destroyed by a flood. He's got to go find Chanticleer. <laughs> oh, plus, he doesn't know anything about being an animal. Yeah. <laughs> I like it when uh, Pateau tells him, hey, keep your pants on, and Edmund looks embarrassed because he realizes he's naked. He goes and puts a shirt on instead of pants. <laughs> hey, one thing in the animated world... Being pantsless is completely okay, but you better put a shirt on. <laughs> it's true. There you and go. Donald shows that Winnie, always. Hey, Gus, yes. One thing I never I mean, understood about Donald, though, is when he's you know out amongst people, he always has a shirt on. But when he comes out of the shower, he always has a towel around the bottom. <laughs> never made sense. That's funny. <laughs> Just, you know, food for thought. Not all movies are perfect. Just go with it. Oh, this one takes the cake. All right, here we go. I like the scene. Now, there's a scene where the Duke is baking a pie, you know, like all evil antagonists do. Why exactly was he baking a pie? Hungry. Can't he go, out, can't he go and get, like, a rabbit or something? Isn't it storming? Nothing available. It's true. You know, Supply and demand. Yeah, I don't know exactly why he was doing it, but, uh, you know, his uh, hunch comes in. And uh, while he's baking a pie and it interrupts him, the movie was originally shown to have a skunk character voiced by a six-year-old kid who was put into the pie and was about to go into the oven. Oh, no. <laughs> that makes more sense, like, as far as the owl goes, yeah. you know, and it also adds more fear of, This oh, guy this means business. Yeah. <laughs> this guy yeah. definitely means business. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's like, hand. oh, he's not that bad. He's just baking a pie. Oh, look what he's putting in it. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The scene had to be removed for portraying child abuse. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> One other question is that rooster in the very, very beginning, he, or the stranger, where he comes in, he's like, hey, shut up, clear. And he, <laughs> <laughs> and he starts a big old fight. And then, like, the Duke sent him to humiliate Chanticleer, yes, but, like, what happens to him after that? Where does he go? And where did the Duke find this other guy? I just don't understand. <laughs> maybe he's like the neighbor. Maybe he's like a neighboring rooster, or maybe some sort of mercenary rooster that's just for hire. Oh. And the Duke just like sent him after him. One thing I noticed when for the first time after like many years of watching this movie is right in the very beginning of the movie when Edmund is reading the storybook, and right before the mom like tells him that we're gonna go, like we gotta go and help and you stay here, he, like, puts his finger on the Duke's eye, and it actually, in the in the animation, it breaks his monocle. Oh, in the book? Yeah, in the book. And so that was one of the main reasons why the Duke didn't like him. <laughs> he came back, he's like, you put your finger in the Duke's face. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes more sense, you know, as to why the Duke would even care about this random kid sh- calling out the name Chanticleer. Yeah, he- and now it goes personal. <laughs> you broke my monocle, dude. <laughs> yeah, true. Okay, so let's talk about the animation in this. 
Um, one thing that I really noticed and liked, I noticed this a lot in Don Bluth's films, is he uses a lot of rotoscoping. So in this movie, they used a lot of rotoscoping for cars, vehicles, and there are a few, like, human characters that they're animals, but they walk like people. Um, so he uses that to, obviously, like, cut the costs. And it's, it's, I think he does a fabulous job with blending freestyle animation with rotoscoping. I mean, he uses it when it needs to be used, and I like it. Yeah, I see. I see the rotoscoping in his films too. You know, you, we can talk all day about you know the the differences and what we didn't like or did like about the storyline, but the animation really, it is. He does a fantastic job. Uh, oh, uh, what do you say? Uh, oh, Mr. Animation says no. Okay, Chelsea, on your side, why do you like my it? Side, well, like what you guys were saying, he does a great job of of using rotoscoping and even at the very beginning this was the this was one of the very first times that they put in like the computer car mm-hmm. they actually animated the car by computer and like you can't tell at all but this is one of those things they did a good job at, at blending those things together i think looking at his budget and what he did it with i thought it was great and you mason what are your thoughts on the other side well i I don't want to sound like an elitist here, and I don't want to sound like I know everything or that I'm an expert on animation, but I I had some problem with the animation and the layouts for this movie. Those were the two things. Going back to our discussion on timing, to me the animation for Rockadoodle was, I don't want to say that it was painful to watch, but it was kind of frustrating to watch. In what way? I don't know if it's just Don Bluth or... Actually, it's not just Don Bluth. He, he, he got this right in other films, and I'll, I'll explain it in a minute. But there was so much movement and action all the time in this movie. Everything in the movie had to be in this kind of on-twos all the time. And it, I kind of saw a rhythm in the movements, and I saw that it was kind of getting choppy. Everything felt kind of rushed to me. It didn't help that none of the animations in the film seemed to be shot on ones. I didn't really see any particular scene that, that looked like it was shot on ones. I'm probably wrong. There were probably some that were shot on ones, but I didn't see it. And it's a shame because last night I saw The Secret of Nim, which was Don Bluth's first film that he did after leaving Disney. And that film has a... Yeah, I love it. It had a great sense of timing. The atmosphere and everything, but the pacing of the emotions and the timing of the animations was so much better than Rockadoodle. Here's my second point. The layouts and the backgrounds, I didn't I didn't like them. I thought they were awful. <laughs> I don't did they get did they get like a surrealist painter to do them? Now again, I don't want to I, I just want to make this clear. I don't want to sound like the meh animator, you know. <laughs> to you me, do. you know. <laughs> you really do, in all seriousness, every animated film to me is is magic and I appreciate it for what it is. But in a couple of these scenes, the perspective was all wrong. Okay, when they're holding on to the film studio tower and they fall off, they start falling and it shows them falling but the camera's fixed on the tower and the background moves as they're as it's toppling over. But they're pointed downward and the camera is pointing downward. So they're actually pointing at a right degree angle from the ground. I don't want to ruin it for the listeners, but I saw that and I was like, what? <laughs> also in the beginning of the film and also in the end when they show the farmlands and that landscape, there's a lot of like hills, kind of uh, you know hilly landscapes that are so distorted that they look like these mountain peaks that are like wrapped in these cornfield print wallpapers. Oh, you're talking to the very beginning? The very beginning when he's going up. When they're, like, like, zooming in? Yeah, and they're like, oh, dang, oh, dang, oh, the sun's gone, come Uh up, I'm throwing. And uh, (laughs) the hill's like this egg that goes up, and it's so super steep, and it's just, and it's wrapped around with these fields of crops that are defying gravity, basically. Yeah, that scene, I'm pretty sure it was a CGI layout, 
Because at the very beginning, they do this crazy, like, zoom in to Chanticleer as he's singing or cock-a-doodle-doing. Maybe it was just not such a great use of the technology, but... Maybe it's just a poor choice of what they... Yeah. Now, Don Bluth does have some strong points. I'm not trying to make this film look, you know, all terrible. I like like some of the character designs, and I did like that scene where it zooms in. You know, the opening of the scene of the movie was really cool. Don Bluth is also known for having a lot of glowing, sparkly, dare I say dazzling, effects in his films. Um, You know how he accomplishes this? It's by literally backlighting these matted image while animating. So when you're seeing this really vibrant, glowy effect in his films, it's because they literally put a light behind that that matted image. And then filmed it with the camera? Yeah. Going back to Secret of Nim, Nicodemus, the kind of ancient sage rat, he has glowing eyes, and that's how they accomplish that effect. Oh. Yay. So now we get to talk about the songs in this movie. Um, I that sounded totally unenthusiastic. <laughs> you know what that sounded like? That sounded like in a goofy movie. And I just want to say, yay, for another fantastic year. <laughs> yay. <laughs> no, it was totally enthusiastic. It's my favorite part. Pick it up, Selfie. Be aggressive. B E A G R E S I E. This is my stop, okay? This is my point. Rock a Doodle has some of the best music. And Okay, a little bit about me. Why I chose this movie, why I love this movie, why it's always stuck with me. One, I love music, obviously. Two, amongst all performers, Elvis is one of my all-time favorite people ever. So you put those two things together in an animated film, what do you think is going to happen for me? It's going to stick with me. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the songs and what made them so great and the different, how they came about and everything. So... Rock-A-Doodle is the 49th album by American singer and guitarist Glenn Campbell, as we talked about before. Now, he can claim this because he did all of the acoustic and electric guitars in this album, along with his friend Billy Joe Walker. And I would have loved to have been a part of those recording sessions, because they also brought in the Jordanaires. They are legends. The Jordanaires, they recorded with Elvis since his very first record, and they've also recorded with the greats such as Patsy Cline, Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, and even the Miss Julie Andrews. <laughs> Just to Dang. name a few. Yeah. Exactly. They are the quartet that they sing in the background and add all of the, the harmonies to the, these different songs to make them true-sounding Elvis 50 songs. And the song, we have a lot of different songs. We've got The Sun Do Shine. The sun do shine, sun do shine, sun do shine, sun do shine. And we have, we hate the sun, the come back to you, which is one that I was sad they they have as a background song um, mm-hmm. when they're like traveling, looking around for Chanticleer. And then we have Rockadoodle, which is Rockadoodle. <laughs> one of my favorites. And then um, the bouncer song with all of the little frogs, and that, those are done by the Don Bluth players. <laughs> and Tweedledee D, like Tweedledee D, they're running out of batteries. The treasure uh-huh. hunt and fever, Glenn Campbell. I love that scene where they're like growing in, and the different we've got the the different frogs who have to be dressed like the sharks chasing around the kids and stuff. And then um, sink or swim with Goldie. And then they both do a, a duet with Kiss and Coo. And then Back to the Country with Glenn Campbell again. The Owl's Picnic. And my absolute favorite of all of them was voiced by our favorite Phil Harris of Tie in Your Shoes. <laughs> Tie 
tie in your shoes is your favorite song? I love that song, yes. Really? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that one. It's my favorite song. Oh, wow. I always wanted to, like, to, like, learn it and sing it during something, but it, you know, <laughs> what point in time am I ever going to be able to sing <laughs> You know, but I'm seven years old. This was awesome. I love that song. Yeah, I like the songs a lot. I think they're pretty decent. I mean, what, you just rattled off 12 songs in this, mm-hmm. like, that were all used yeah. in the film. Um, so obviously it was centered around around music. The songs were decent. I, I feel there's kind of a problem with with animated films after the Disney Renaissance. You know, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast. They all had these all these songs that were fabulous. Very and so, Broadway. Yeah, and so all the all the animation films that followed, it seemed like it was part of the recipe that oh, you have to have songs in an animated film. Kind of like remember what you were saying, like give them pigs, they want more pigs. Right. Give them songs, they want more songs. Exactly. You know, they tried to copy the Disney formula, and I don't know. I'm not a lover of all these songs. The only ones I really like are the ones that Chanticleer sings. But what the heck? Every single time Chanticleer is singing, it's being voiced over by the dog. When I want to be hearing Glenn Campbell Chanticleer singing, I mean, I get two words, and then the dog's telling me some you know, backstory. Oh, yeah, because he's doing the narration. Yeah. And I'm like, no, the song. I know. Yeah, right? Well, the first song that Chanticleer sings on the farm, the the first part of Rockadoodle, right? Uh Uh-huh. Or what's it called? Where he's first on the song. Sun Will Shine. I like that song. I like the treasure hunting song when he's in the club and it's all underwater themed. And, uh, but other than that, the songs weren't very memorable for me. I only remember those two songs. Maybe I'm just not a song guy. Yeah. Every animated film is a story, and these stories have themes. Um, the theme that I that I got out of it uh, from the end was it was actually quoted by Pateau. That's what he actually said. The theme of, with a little help from your friends, you can accomplish anything. I liked that uh, Shannon Clear got support from his friends that helped him kind of gain his confidence and helped defeat, you know, helped him to, like, rock out one more time and, and <laughs> defeat, a, defeat the Grand Duke. I like that message. That was a good message. They also had a, a big theme of, like, fame and stardom. One of my favorite quotes is when Goldie is talking to Pinky, she's just all complaining, like, I'm too good for the chorus. And he's like, oh, <laughs> everybody starts out in the chorus. And, you know, everyone starts out in the chorus, of course. You could always give up show business. And then she looks up horrid and says, Pinky! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty interesting how they how they threw that fame and stardom in there, and they tried to pull it in as well with the it's hard to be happy without friends. So maybe they're trying to say that you know the with the fame also comes no friends. But you know, I <laughs> I think that that's not quite entirely true. But he, he had a lot of issues. Yeah, before issues. That, that kind of led to the depression. <laughs> right with the fame. <laughs> okay, so. We do this every episode. We list our favorite quotes because we love to quote. We do. So, take it away. What are your favorite quotes? One of my favorite quotes is down at the very end of the movie where you've got Patu and, the, and Chanticleer is in the, in the water and he's going through that, remembering all these words of, of everything that's going on. And he's just, Chanticleer, you got to crow and you got to crow now. Like, it's your job to bring up the sun. It hasn't shined since you left. Santa Claus, you got to grow Oh, you're good. <clears throat> I also like the end. And then Patu, you know, he goes off and he kind of glares at he glares at the Duke and she's like, Chanticleer, Chanticleer, Chanticleer. And he, like, keeps going on and everybody else starts chanting with him. Yeah, you get the big, deep voice in there. Chanticleer. Chanticleer. <laughs> I love it. 
Yeah. And then Snipes when he's like, the city, the chicks, the food. <laughs> you, know, you know who that is? That's the voice of Mandark from Dexter's Laboratory. What? Oh. Wow. And it's also the, uh, the obnoxious nerdy kid on board the Polar Express. Oh. It is. You know who I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah, we do. I like the Grand Duke when he's confronting Edmund. And he's going off on, on how much he doesn't like uh, Chanticleer. And then he gets this really kind of sassy pose. And he goes, and I absolutely despise rock and roll. <laughs> and, it's, and it's serious. Oh, dude, he's ragging on the rockin', man. <laughs> I don't like rock and roll. He's a villain. He's a villain. <laughs> Obviously, he's a villain. He's a right villain. <laughs> And one thing I, I love when Patu is talking, he's narrating and he says, and that's when the Duke hit the ceiling. <laughs> and he actually, like, blows up and does hit the ceiling. I like when he's uh, talking to Goldie and he's, they're kind of, like, swooning over each other. And he's like, you know what? When I left the farm, I had such a big hole in my heart, you could have put a John Deere tractor through there. <laughs> I liked it. And then later on he continues and he's like, my heart, my heart is so full now, I could just explode like a bloated lamp. Oh, King, you say the sweetest thing. <laughs> but, like, the, her facial expression is, like, priceless, because she's like, ugh. <laughs> and then the very last quote that I loved, at the very end, where Hunch is flying away, and he's like, Animation, it's music to my ears. <laughs> Love it. Okay, so, final thoughts, and how many stars do you give it? Um, I, you know what, I give it three stars. Don Bluth said it himself. It didn't live up to what he envisioned. I've seen other films in the Don Bluth universe, and uh, this one just, I don't know. I couldn't get into it, and the animation was frustrating. So, yeah. It's not that Don Bluth is a horrible director. Um, his first feature of film after leaving Disney was Secret of Nim. That film scored a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. And so it's not like all his films are terrible. This one just didn't hit the mark, I don't think. Yeah, Totally. Three stars. Okay, for me, I like this movie. I find it enjoyable maybe once a year, just kind of as a nostalgic throwback, not something to take seriously or to study. I had the opportunity to watch it again, but I decided, no, I don't want to watch Rockadoodle again. I'll watch something else. So I think that's kind of what it, for me, how, how it meant to me. I gave it three stars. Because I do appreciate the music. I, I like some of the character design. It's overall pleasant, kind of confusing, but, I mean, I think I understand what's going on because I've seen it so many times. But, I mean, it's not terribly bad. It's not a complete train wreck. It's not amazing. So it's just right smack dab in the middle. Three stars. Well said. Thank you. Chelsea? Well, this movie was my choice to do because I love it so much. You know, it doesn't even really matter. All the plot holes, all the plot things and you know, critical reviews really doesn't matter for me because it was that it added the childhood favorite, which adds an extra 5.5 bonus to whatever score you're going to add because it just has such a a wonderful growing up feeling for me. And then also, because it has such great songs, once again, another 0.5 bonus. So you got a full (laughs) star there just for those two things. I'm going to give it a four stars. And as always, we want to say a big thank you to our listeners. If you haven't seen Rockadoodle, uh, it is available on Netflix. Watch instantly, so there's no really no excuse for not watching it unless you don't have Netflix. (laughs) 
And don't forget to check out our website, therotoscopers.com. We're also on Twitter and on Facebook. Perfect. So shout out to the Wakefield Report, and we really appreciate the, the positive publicity we got from him. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. I mean, we're not going to talk every week, but we were, we were listed as show of the week or podcast of the week. Um, which I think is really exciting because what he does, it's theme park news reviews and opinions, and he included us in that, like, above and beyond everything else. So, I I don't know, I was, like, fangirling out. I was really excited. So, thank you so much. If you, too, like the show, um, remember to subscribe to us on iTunes, and we would absolutely love it if you left us a review on, on iTunes. Just as we give the movies three, four stars, five, give us what you think. I mean, but really, by, by doing that, it helps to get the podcast more exposure. That's kind of the way that iTunes rates podcasts and features them. So we're able to get a lot more listeners and a lot more fans just by having more positive reviews up there. So if you like the show and you enjoy listening to it, it really just takes one or two minutes. Just go write a quick review what you think. And we really, really do appreciate We appreciate everyone who's listened and all the feedback and positive comments we've gotten it's really been exciting to do this so i'm excited to to keep this up for sure and we'd also like to encourage anybody who would like to to, if you have any questions comments or anything like that you can also contact us through the website and we will be able to answer those things on the podcast you can just email us at the rotoscopers at gmail.com we would love to share that message over our podcast all right well we've had another great episode so until next time we are the rotoscopers Animation! It's music to my ears! Until next time! Yeah, I... What? Oh, sorry. No, I... By the way... Oh, (laughs) sorry, no, go, go. I'm gonna talk now. Okay. (gasps) Then we'll start right now. Chelsea is blowing her nose. (laughs) (laughs) I'm giving a blow-by-blow. I didn't mean that. (laughs) So punny. My sinuses. (laughs) Giving it a blow by blow. I love it. (laughs) I didn't even notice. Oh, I'm such a dork. Here's the end of the story. The budget for the movie was an estimated $18 million dollars. The movie in the U.S. grossed less than twelve thousand. Twelve million. <laughs> <laughs> oh <my gosh>. <laughs> <laughs> Epic fail. <laughs> no wonder he has to retire. <laughs> this guy sucks. <laughs> All right. All those years of waiting. (laughs) Wasted. Years of academy training. Wasted. (laughs) All right. Quit quit gaggling, you two geese. All right. Here's the... (laughs) Uncle Waldo. Oh, you wake up the whole neighborhood. The whole neighborhood. All right. We're not chickens. We're geese. And basted in... White wine. Basted? I think he was marinated. (laughs) (laughs) All right, enough, Uncle Waldo.